Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Jessica Gross is an opinion writer at the New York Times and the author of Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. In her book, Jessica examines parenting and the unrealistic pressure that we place on mothers to work, birth, be caregivers, and do it all flawlessly and joyfully while living in a society that is woefully lacking when it comes to supporting them. Today, Jessica and I unpack the roots of our societal expectations on American mothers and our hopes for what the future might look like for parents and non-parents alike. Okay, let's get to Jessica Gross. So you write an amazing parenting column for the New York Times, and you've essentially devoted your career to examining parenting issues and basically, you know, digging into your own life and looking around at other people's lives and experiences and creating context for us all is how I interact with your column. Can you tell us a little bit about how you found your way into this beat? Absolutely. So I have been a journalist for almost 20 years, which seems absurd. And how am I old enough? I'm just a baby. How am I old (laughs) enough to have been doing this for 20 years? But I always had a main interest in what's known as women's issues or gender issues. And that's not really a great way to describe them because they are everybody issues. Caregiving, the economics of caregiving, things like abortions. Every single person, whether you are a caregiver or not, interacts with these issues and they all form a constellation of, of family issues. And 
I found myself, even as I was reporting on other topics, always sort of coming back to this constellation of, of issues. And then I had run a newsletter called Lenny for a couple of years, and I was looking for a new gig and a sort of next step in my career. And I saw that the Times was advertising for someone to help build out their parenting content. And as I sort of had the experience, both in reporting on these issues for a lot of years, and then kind of helping start a startup, it just was a great combination of the skills that I had at the time. And as I've been at the Times more than five years now, which seems ridiculous, it went by the I feel like the pandemic shifted how we all experience time. And it both yes. felt endless and also very fast. <laughs> yes. I have been there for five years and my role has shifted along the way from being more editorial and conceptual to writing, just always writing all the time. And I just feel so lucky to be able to interview so many different kinds of parents across the country about their experiences and to learn so much from them and also experts in all different kinds of fields. Because like I said, parenting kind of touches everything. So I'm constantly talking to sociologists, psychologists, physicians, economists. There's so many things that affect the way that we are able to raise our families and spend time with our children. And it's just constantly a learning process for me. And I love it. So let's talk a little bit about screaming on the inside. As you said, spending time with children immediately, there are just so many things that popped into my head. But you started writing this book during the pandemic. I did. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were going through in terms of your own parenting experience? Like what made you want to write this book? So the ideas in it had been percolating for a decade. I had a very difficult pregnancy with my older daughter. I had hyperemesis, which is extreme morning sickness. And I got extremely depressed and anxious, whether that was because I was so physically ill, I will never know. But it ended up requiring that I quit a job that I was really excited to have at the time. And at the time, I really was pretty devastated in every possible way. I thought I had already failed at motherhood and I did not even have a child yet because I was confirming everybody's worth stereotypes of pregnant people that we are no longer competent and that we can no longer do more than one thing and that our identity is is solely about our children. And so as that happened to me and even before then, I had been, you know, reporting on the ways in which America is unique in how little, how wealthy we are as a nation and how little we give to parents. We are unique in that way. We are one of only two countries in the entire world that does not give paid parental leave. And even though I had been reporting on it before I became pregnant myself, actually living through it and actually living through the way in which our safety net could not help me in any way, shape or form, just despite how many, like having basically every privilege under the sun, really inspired me to make it a mainstay of my reporting starting then. So that was 2012. And then I think what happened during 2020 was as the world fell apart and all our systems of care really just disappeared overnight, more people were realizing that their status quo was not okay and that there could be a better way and a way to reimagine the way that we support caregivers in this country. And for me personally, you know, 
my husband and I were both trying to work at our full-time jobs while also raising two daughters who at the time were seven and three and educating them. And I was terrible at it. I came out of that experience wanting to pay my daughter's second grade teacher a million dollars a year because (laughs) I already respected teachers, but having to try to do it myself, I was like, I'm terrible at this. Also, my parents both got COVID in March, 2020. They were in, they are in their seventies. I was very convinced that they were going to die. It was awful. So I, I kind of memory holds March and April, 2020, they were bleak. And then my parents Knockwood improved. They both had a couple lingering long COVID symptoms, but have since resolved. And we ended up moving in with them in June, 2020, because I, one of either my husband or I would have had to take a leave from our jobs. There was just no way we could do all of the things that were required of us in, in a 24 hour period. And there were two of us. I mean, there's so many parents out there who are single parents and they had it even harder. So I am, you know, endlessly indebted to my parents and very lucky that they were willing and able to take us in. And we stayed with them for several months. And then we just sort of figured it out for the next school year, which was also pretty rough. And I still remember the beginning of the 2021-22 school year, when my kids were finally back in a physical school building full time, just not understanding how I had gotten anything done for the preceding, you know, 12 to 18 months, because the house was finally silent. (laughs) Mm. And I, I was like, Oh, my God, I didn't even realize how much sort of mental weight, the noise and the interruptions, the, you know, hourly interruptions had been weighing on me and how much sort of additional work I went into every single day. So that was what was happening for me in during that, you know, early part of COVID. I had it easier than most. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When I think about you in that time, and then I hear you say that you had it easier than most, I'm curious to unpack a section in your book where you write that there is some preliminary evidence from the pandemic that society's expectations of ideal motherhood, that you should be continuing to joyfully work and exercise and generally live life as you are not pregnant, are actively harming women's health. Can you talk a little bit about that and the pressures of wanting an ideal or normal pregnancy or normal motherhood? Where where in history did pregnancy and, and motherhood in general become some sort of performative exercise? 
I mean, it was really building up over time. The idea that women should be self-sacrificing and that mothers should always put themselves last, that's thousands of years old. That's embedded mm. in all of our religious teachings, in all of the messages we've gotten for basically ever. And motherhood being as deeply individualistic as it is, I think grew up over time. But, you know, from the earliest days of colonial America, everybody was sort of expected to do everything for themselves. I mean, that's a sort of frontier society. But in those days, because everything was in the home, fathers were intimately involved in the raising of their children. And parenting was not seen as completely the purview of mothers. Over time, and this is an oversimplification, but as the Industrial Revolution happened and there was a separation between the domestic sphere and the public sphere, the domestic sphere became the purview of women and only men were supposed to go out and work. Caveat here, immigrant women, Black women always worked, always worked. Black women were obviously enslaved. And so the idea of the ideal mother never included them from the beginning of our idea of what that is. And so as time went on and mothers became sort of more and more educated and wanted sort of broader identity for themselves outside of, you know, just motherhood. And this is not to diminish the role of mother for anyone who is chooses it because it's an amazing role and it is one of the most important parts of my own identity. So it's more of a both and situation rather than an either or. But as women went into the workplace and and we're trying to you know do all of the things we just sort of piled more expectations onto what this notion of the ideal mother is so it's not just you know raising perfect children who are successful in life and reflect you reflect your values whatever they are for their entire life but it's also looking perfect. It's working and having a very successful career while also somehow being home all of the time. And it's also, you know, providing for your community and keeping up all the family relationships outside your nuclear family. And it's always a nuclear family. There is um, still to this day, you know, a lot of conservative pressure to have that be the only way that we see as a good family. And it's so outdated. It just boggles my mind. So the way that these ideals really crashed on us during the pandemic was when, you know, there was no childcare, there was no family help, there was no friend help, there was no education. Mothers were expected to be the ones who were picking up all of the pieces. And it's just too much for any individual person or even any individual family to to deal with. And it's not the way that historically any culture has raised children. Raising children has always been a community endeavor. It has never meant to be an individual problem or issue or whatever we want to think of it as. It's it's always been something that the community does together. Let's talk about that a little bit more because you just touched in about the problem or the problems with the idea of a nuclear family. How how do you think modern motherhood affects friendship? And how, not only how does it affect friendship, but when you talk about motherhood and parenting in general, not necessarily having always been a singular endeavor. It, my experience oftentimes from 
for most people, clients I would work with over the years, there was this huge shift in their life when they went from being a single person, then maybe to a partnered person, then to a pregnant person, and then to a parent. There's a huge shift in their sense of self, but also in their community. Can you talk a little bit about how do people cope with that and how does how we view and experience motherhood affect that? Well, I mean, you know, just to say, I it's hard to not generalize because there's 250 million people in this country. Everyone has, you know, markedly different experiences and I want to really honor that. But I think many of us experience going through our single lives in our 20s, not really interacting with children that much, you know, Perhaps our friends don't have kids. We've moved away from family to establish career. And so our communities are siloed. You know, we only spend time with people who are just like us and in that specific phase of our life. And so I experienced this. I was the first one of my friends to have a baby. And I was really lucky in that my friends rolled with it. I think they definitely were weirded out. (laughs) mildly weirded out, but they were so welcoming. And I made it a priority to really keep up those relationships and do my best to, you know, meet them where they were in their lives and ask them about their lives and, you know, try to maintain the relationships that I had. But it's really hard because you are in a different life stage. And I think a lot of times that becomes a chasm in friendships. It doesn't have to be. I actually had the opposite problem, which is it took me a really long time to make mom friends because I was so afraid of being judged where my friends who didn't have kids, I had been friends with them for years. I wasn't worried that they would judge me. They were so supportive and they loved me. I felt like I was in such a vulnerable place that making new connections felt with people who maybe were doing things differently than I was as a mom. That was really, really scary to me. And I think a lot of you know, people feel that same, you know, trepidation with, Mm. with new friends in that moment. On the other hand, I know people who just went to mom groups and found their people and were immediately feeling like they had a new community that they felt really great about. So I think it's just an, it is undeniably a new life stage, a new identity. And I think it's a difficult one to navigate for so many of us in so many different ways. Thinking about navigating and the hardship that is embedded in that when you are moving through this experience of becoming a mother or a parent, let's talk about parenting on social media, which I feel you've always done such a great job of critiquing and unpacking and just helping helping us understand the complexity of it some of the benefit of it and then also some of the problems behind it. So you've talked a lot about particularly mom influencers or mom influencers who enforce unrealistic expectations of motherhood. What are your tips for engaging in parental social media in a healthy way? So I think this can apply to any social media interactions and just, I will also say that I am terrible at doing these. (laughs) I melt my brain on TikTok almost every night. It's not good. I want to keep my daughters off social media as long as is humanly possible. So that all said, 
if someone makes you feel bad, first of all, ask yourself, do I even like this person? Do I even respect this person? Do I share their values? Are they teaching me something that I find valuable? And if the answer to those questions is no, then mute them, unfollow them, keep it moving. Do not engage with their content anymore because the chances are whatever good you were getting out of that parasocial relationship does not outweigh the bad of it for you. And then something that's been helpful for me is time boxing. So setting an alarm and saying like, okay, I need to melt my brain on TikTok for 15 minutes. I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to put the phone away and I'm going to engage with the people that are actually in my house. <laughs> and exactly. To, yeah. To be clear, the TikTok time is always happening post bedtime. It is just at the end of a day of work and, you know, connecting with my kids, helping with the homework. I mean, as soon as I get off with you, I'm going to plunge directly into dinner time, homework time, bath time. Sometimes like my brain just cannot do anything but but dissolve. And so <laughs> we all need that release sometimes. So I think it's sort of a harm reduction technique because I think saying like, oh, just, you know, why do you go on social media? Oh, well, you know, my friends are there and it makes me laugh. And it often makes me read new things. I mean, that's, you know, we complain about Twitter, especially all the time. I follow so many experts on there who are so smart and they're constantly publishing new work and I can connect with them and read their work. And I would have no other way to find it all in one place. Moms, especially who I think had gone through something really specific and difficult that I interviewed said that they found real solace and connection on social media. So particularly moms who had had a baby in the NICU for a long time, or they had multiple pregnancy losses, or they really struggled to conceive. They found that their friends in real life, though they could be really empathetic, if they had not experienced that specific thing, they just didn't understand. And they also couldn't offer practical advice. So just practical advice in those situations is worth its weight in gold because you've never experienced those things before and they they can feel so isolating like you're the only person who's experiencing them and so you know i talked to moms who really felt like it was a lifeline for them so you know like everything else social media has its good and its bad and we just need to find whatever is the the balance for us you think about balance which i always feels like a challenging word when it comes to just being a woman i feel like it sometimes can create limits in the sense that trying to find balance sometimes keeps you from stretching into something that might be good for you or, mm -hmm. you know, exposing yourself to something that might be hard in order to achieve balance, right? So I always struggle with that word. But when I think about the experience of the pandemic, especially the early part, I feel that balance is almost impossible at this point, right? Yeah. And so I think balance has been replaced by burnout in almost every sector. How are you solving for that in your own life? Obviously, this is a great opportunity to just touch in on privilege as well in terms of childcare and access. Absolutely. But how do you negotiate all of this right now? You know, so I wrote, I wrote a column last year that was called, I think, 
like butter scrape over too much bread. Mm. So just that feeling of not enough of you to go around. Mm. And even though I think most of us feel life is much easier now than it was in 2020, most people, and I don't think just parents feel this, we never got a respite, you know? We, mm. were, we were pulled to our capacity, both emotionally and physically. And then there just was no time to take for ourselves to stop working, to, you know, really take a vacation. I mean, everything is so much more expensive now too. And so I think that was another thing that happened in the, you know, tail end of the pandemic was inflation, <laughs> which is another barrier in terms of doing things that might bring us pleasure. Certainly not everything that brings us pleasure costs money, but certainly a lot of things do. So, you know, for myself, rest and exercise are the two things that I really try to prioritize during my week. I don't always accomplish that, but, you know, I am a big napper, a big weekend napper. (laughs) And so I will, my kids are old enough now. That's also a real key to this. They're six and 10. So I can be like, guess what, girls, you're watching TV downstairs for an hour and leave me alone. (laughs) You're not coming up here. I'm asleep. Like that's it's, I have no guilt about that. Like at the end of a long week, I am just done. And then, I mean, I am someone who tends towards anxiety and the only thing that I have found consistently helps is running. Mm -hmm. And again, if I do it three times a week, that's a great week. I'm finding sort of less and less space to do it. I'm not exactly sure why. I'm sure winter doesn't help. But um, that's those are the sort of the two things I can do on a weekly basis. In terms of longer term, I am really trying to prioritize seeing my friends this year. It's been so hard. It's been I know. so hard. I know. I know. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so incredibly hard. And it's just, you know, everyone is so busy. They have their own work, family obligations. I think that's a, you know, 30s, 40s problem that as you get older, you just accrue baked in tasks that you cannot, you know, politely get out of. And we only have so much bandwidth every single day to to do anything. Like I don't have it. <laughs> and as much as like, I yeah. know, I mean, I'm really trying though, because I know that it would be very nourishing for me to see my friends more. And so that's one thing that I'm trying to get better at. And I am just not finding that I'm doing it. <laughs> what do you do? I, you, do you know, do? I, a couple things for me, new thing is weightlifting. That's been Ooh. really helpful. Just like high impact, like weights that also just as you're getting older, it's like great to yes. do that. So I'm really enjoying weightlifting. And then walking, like going on distress walks. Like, I mean, I might go for one after we're done recording, like just even if it's like five, 10 minutes, just like I Mm -hmm. just walk and then come back. Cause it's, you know, as someone who deals with depression and anxiety, gorgeous mix, you know, it's just. (laughs) They're like sisters. I feel like they go together a lot. They do. They do. It's really that. You know, I have to sometimes just find ways to to do it. And what's interesting because what I've noticed as much as I actually don't really like working around lots of people, but when I'm alone, I find that like all of my like, you know, intrusive thinking is much more, is far more amplified than mm-hmm. if I'm working around two or three other people. I notice that the intrusive thoughts are much, much 
more in the background. So it's interesting. So sometimes like a actual like mood buster is just forcing myself to work around a couple people on my team, not forcing adore my team. Everyone is wonderful, but just having them nearby or yeah, or distress walks or weightlifting. Those are my things, but doing a complete 180, let's go to the workplace and just tap in there in terms of, you know, on an employer level, what changes or shifts can companies make to do better by their employees who are entering parenthood? Because I just feel like that is such a big key part of it all. I mean, the first step is always having open conversations, because I think there's often assumptions made about how it's going to be, what they want. And each person has such a different reaction. I mean, I've talked to so many mothers whose employers assumed that they were going to want to pull back from big assignments, from reaches, and they were like, no, I feel more efficient and motivated than ever. And then other people who were like, you know what, I really need to take a step back. I don't want to leave entirely, but I need to have some sort of more flexible arrangement. And listen, it's not always possible. There's certain careers, you know, it's not like, If you're a nurse or a doctor, you can be like, and I'm going to work from home this, you know, today. There are certain boundaries that each profession has, but I think more broadly, I, and I do feel like we are moving in the right direction this way. Employers need to treat all of their employees like human beings with a life outside of their workplace, because all of us, whether we are parents almost everybody will have to caregive for somebody in their life at some point, whether it is an elderly family member, it is a friend, it is somebody, you know, a sibling's children. You just, it is unusual to never have to caregive for somebody in your entire lifespan. And so I think just recognizing that, that we're going to all have periods of our life where we have other demands on our time. And it doesn't mean that we should just be discarded. (laughs) Because I think that that was such a feeling that I had in my first pregnancy when I had to leave that job, because I was so sick, I felt like roadkill. Like I was just like Mm -hmm. on the side of the road, and everybody was running me over. And it was just like, done for me. And I've been really lucky that I've been able to work my way back into a role that I'm so happy with. And and I just feel incredibly blessed and privileged to be here. But I think that there's just so many situations where with just a little bit more understanding and a little bit more flexibility, people would be able to stay in jobs that they were otherwise happy with. Talking about flexibility and understanding, you mentioned your partner or your husband a couple minutes ago, the fact that you go to bed as soon as your kids go to bed. What have you two done relationally to fortify things as you've gone through the ups and downs of this experience? And then do you have any recommendations or insight on like what has worked for you and potentially could be helpful for someone else when they think about, you know, as I think about the list of areas that get hit, it's family, it's finances, it's work, it's self-identity, but then it's also the relationship if you happen to actually be in a romantic relationship as you are child rearing so i mean first of all he is truly an equal partner in pretty much every way he does at least 50 percent of child care possibly more depending on the week he is a completely involved parent 
and has been since the beginning. I think those patterns, I mean, if people are listening to this and they are not yet parents, but hope to be someday, those patterns get set really early and you can, you know, reassess the pattern, you can change it, but the more ingrained it gets, the harder it is. So if you're not yet a parent, you're listening to this, try to set that equality early. And I always joke that when we were new parents and my husband would ask me, what does she want? Like, she's crying. I don't know what she wants. And I would be like, I don't know. I don't speak baby. Like, (laughs) we need to figure this out together. I don't have some sort of specialized expertise because I baked her. Like, we can (laughs) learn all the things together. And I feel like we really did that along the way. And so he was immediately comfortable really being a hands-on parent from, from day one. And in terms of, you know, maintaining our relationship ongoing, we talk a lot about our feelings, to be honest, about parenting when we feel burnt out, when we feel like we just don't, you know, we don't have it today. I will wake up and be like, I have a million things on my to-do list and I don't want to do any of them. And he was like, I feel you. So I think just having that ongoing conversation and there's been times when either one of us has said, I'm really struggling right now. Can you do X, Y, and Z? And I think one thing that is a real roadblock, especially when you are parents, is just a feeling aggrieved and feeling like there is too much for everyone to do. And so I think always, and I don't always succeed at this, but always trying to approach conflict with my husband, remembering that we're still on the same team. Because often both of us can feel, you know, like, well, you're not doing X, Y, and Z, and I'm doing, you know, too much, and you're not helping. And I think ultimately just remembering that we want each other to win. We're in each other's corner. And I think for male partners and hetero relationships, I think One thing that I hear a lot of, and I think that could help them is just to be more observant. So one thing that my husband does that I just love him so much for, and we've been together forever. We got together when I was 23 and he was 24 and I am now 40. So we know each other very well. And he will look at me and he will know if I am just at the end of my rope. And without me having to tell him, he will say, let me take the kids to the park you're going to lose it. And I can tell. And so I think just paying that extra little bit of attention to the mood of your partner, and I'm not saying that women can't do this too, but I just, you know, often I think moms feel like they have to ask for the help when the help Mm. should just be offered. And so that's one little thing that I think male partners can really do, do that would go such a long way is just being super observant about things that need to get done or some additional support that your partner might need. So, I mean, that's one thing that I just am super grateful for. And also he, the one thing that what means I'll keep him around for good is that he brings me coffee every morning because I am not a morning person. <laughs> he always wakes up. He wakes up naturally before me. I'm so jealous. I wish that I could would be the kind of person who would just naturally wake up at 6 a.m. Happy to be here. If I had one, if I could change one thing, that would be it. Mm-hmm. Because every morning I'm just like, oh God, I don't want to do this. <laughs> So yeah, I, 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 I'm a big morning person. So, but I, I totally hear you on just the feeling of like the slog. Well, what it really like is, typically. I know exactly what it is. 
And it's just an unsolvable problem, which honestly is comforting. So, you know, we all have our own sort of circadian rhythm. We all have our own like sleep rhythms that we would prefer. My body wants to be asleep from midnight to 8 a.m. That is what my Mm. body really, really wants. And because of my schedule with my kids, I can't do it. So my body just will not fall asleep until 12 or 1. And during the week, I have to wake up by 7, sometimes 6.30, sometimes 7. And so I just am, no matter what I do, and I've read all the sleep books and I've tried all the things, I just can't get the right amount unless it's a weekend. Or And every time I'm on vacation and there's no, you know, I don't have to wake up at a certain time it all goes away because I can fall asleep between 12 and one and I can wake up between eight and nine. And that's just what my body wants to do. And so it's just a finite problem that hopefully I will one day be able to have a schedule that allows me to sleep in that way. (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's the issue that we're dealing with. And some days I'm, if I fall asleep at 11 PM, I am so psyched. I'm a little bit of a night owl too. So I understand that. I want to go back to something that you just said about the one thing that's going to make you keep your husband around for good. (laughs) Can you share one thing that you think could help make motherhood in America specifically, because you've already called out how different mothering is in and around the world. One thing that would make motherhood more sustainable. I mean, the biggest thing, honestly, is universal healthcare. I think so many of us, make decisions in our lives based on keeping healthcare and that's decisions around and and obviously that applies to people who are not parents but I see so many parents who are taking jobs that have bananas hours when they would and they and their families would benefit from more flexibility simply because they need to keep health insurance and if we remove that there would be so much more flexibility in the roles that we could take both, you know, people of all gender. So I know that's a bigger non-parenting specific thing, but I just really believe that our lives would be materially better. And, you know, a more sort of emotional thing is being comfortable with ambivalence. The biggest revelation I had through the interviews that I did for the book and I talked to about a hundred moms was that not only did they feel guilty and basically everybody felt guilty for some reason, but then they felt guilty about feeling guilty. (laughs) And if we could just, you can't not feel guilty. You have to feel your feelings, but if we could just not blame ourselves for having a range of feelings around parenting, because we're humans and human beings have a range of feelings. We don't come become some other class of humans that is angelic and perfect when we become mothers. That's a fantasy. It's not realistic. So if we could just not feel guilty about having all the feelings, that would be great. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast episode with Jessica Gross. You can learn more about her at jessicagross.com and pick up a copy of her book, Screaming on the Inside. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.